Acts chapter 15. We've been traveling through it slowly, albeit, but we did one through five last week. The problem, what is it? We'll get into it. We're going to go six through basically verse 29 is what we'll get through today, Lord willing. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Jesus, here we are. We set ourselves apart even now to sit underneath the authority and the teaching of your word. We want you to speak. I want to adjust my life to what you've said. And so Holy Spirit, come and work, please. We are asking that you administer to us. We've taken this time and we very purposefully set it apart so that your word would be exalted and that we would draw people to you. And so have your way, Lord. Help us to understand and wrestle through grace and like the ins and the outs and the difficulty of comprehending and being okay with you being gracious toward us and resting in the finished work of the cross, Lord. So open up our minds more to it. I pray that you would help us to rest in you. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, what's the problem? You've got some Jews who were born again there in verse one and then in verse five, explaining to the believers there in Antioch, they had said, hey, you aren't saved. And why'd they say that? Because these Gentiles, they hadn't been circumcised and they hadn't been keeping the law. And because of that, they go up there and says, you can't be saved. Now, this obviously, as we'll read the letter they're going to send to them, unsettled them. We'll get to it and what it means, but that was the problem. So we're going to look at really quickly what exactly is circumcision? Why was it a big deal? And what was the law? But before that, I want to point out this, that in Acts chapter 15, what you're going to see is you're going to see some wrestlings. Last week, we discussed disputes and dissension. If you can remember, dissension was like when somebody stood up and said, nah, this isn't right. That's important to do. In this day and age, when you see things going on that are not biblical, that are destructive to the lives of people, you should probably say something about it if you love them. And then there was a dispute, which was a mutual questioning where I believe this and you believe that. How do you arrive at those conclusions? And you begin to chat through it. You're weighing the evidence. You're trying to understand how these people came here. And there's something very important. And it probably is literally the most important thing. How is a person saved? This is important doctrine that we're dealing with and the church is wrestling through. We're going to get answers in very clear terms how a person's saved. We're not going to be fumbling around or mistaking it. It's going to be very clear. They're going to discuss it here in Acts chapter 15 and then all throughout the rest of scripture. We're going to know. You guys already know we're saved by grace through faith alone. This is how they wrestled through it though. We get to have the benefit of them arguing and wrestling and fighting through these things. And now we have it preserved in scripture so that we can know. So you guys can go and tell other people about it. What you're going to also see is in this arguing and discussion. You might remember last week, I quoted a guy named Josh Hirschberger, who's a good friend. He said, conflict is inevitable. Do you remember this? For those of you married, conflict is inevitable. You're going to disagree. You're going to get upset. But he goes on to say that healthy conflict is invaluable. You'll see this especially at the end. But what we see happening here is people who believed something that was wrong. They're going to be confronted with what is truth. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to humbly and graciously accept the fact that they were wrong. And they're going to adjust themselves to guess what? God's word. And they're not going to 
make a big stink about it? Did they, did they dispute? Yeah, they sure did. But at the end of the day, when God's word was applied, they recognized they were wrong and they moved on and it went towards unity within the church and the continual preaching of the gospel. And so bear that in mind that we're seeing somebody who was very convicted in their beliefs be confronted with God's word and then they're going to change. That's healthy. That kind of conflict and that kind of disputing and that kind of talking with one another is really healthy. When I lived in St. Kitts for just two years of our lives, we lived there. The culture was a little different, wonderful in almost every way, just a wonderful place. But here in the States, we've, there's this, like a, I don't know, an attitude. If you disagree with me, then you hate me, all right? There's just this strange, like we just jump to that conclusion really quickly, makes dialogue difficult. Uh, you take things very personally. When I say you, I mean, I'm including myself in that. I can certainly have a tendency to that. If there's a disagreement, then it's almost like you're insulting my intelligence. And it's taken personally. In St. Kitts, it was not like that. You could have a very heated disagreement and argument, but it wasn't taken personally. It was actually fun to be able to dialogue very passionately with somebody and for them not to hate you at the end of it. You're still friends. You can move on with life. It's, there was a separation between what I believe and who I am as a person. And I, when I say that is what we believe is so integrally in, entwined with who we are. I get that. But it's not, if you disagree with me, then you are offending my soul. <laughs> it's not like that. And I think you see a little bit of that here where there was an understanding like, I love you and you love me. We just disagree. And we can still walk together and love one another in unity. Next week, the hope is to get into what are those essential beliefs we have as Christians that are actually worth dividing over. There are those things. And there is a time when you have to say, I can't fellowship with you anymore because of this. But there are lots of things that really should never allow you to get there. There's certain levels in which you can walk with in ministry. There are certain distinctives, even here at a, as a Calvary Chapel, things that we hold to doctrinally and distinctively that are different than what many of you guys would hold to, but they don't have to divide. And so we see that here, just a maturity in handling disagreements. And that's really healthy. So I want that to be noticed as we go through. It won't be the main point of what we're talking, but it is really important. So I just wanted to point it out. What was the issue? What's the big deal with circumcision? Okay, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. I just want you to see it. This is the first time it's mentioned in scripture and it's in relationship to a covenant that God was making with Abraham. And we're asking the question and hopefully we teach through scripture chapter and verse. We do so expositionally and that we're just, we're gonna try to understand the context of scripture there within the, for example, the first century when it was being written, who was being written to, who was doing the writing and how do we understand what all this means, how it goes together so that we understand what scripture is saying. I don't take my understanding and put it into scripture. It speaks for itself. I have the responsibility and you do too, to know what was trying to be said here. What is God trying to say? What was the intent of the author? So we're looking at that. Here we have Genesis chapter 17. We're going way back in time to God speaking to Abraham. And we're trying to understand why were these Jews so hung up on circumcision and the law that they said you have to believe or you have to have been circumcised, believe in the law or walk in the law in order to be saved. Why were they so hung up on that? All right, 
Here's why. Because it was an integral part of the Jewish faith. Sorry, Genesis 17, starting in verse 10. We'll read a few verses here. This is my covenant with which you shall keep between me and you. This is God speaking to Abraham. And your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who was born in your house or bought with money from a foreigner who is not your descendant, he who's born in your house will be circumcised. Long story short, right? Or repeat, and then it'll go on. To be circumcised was to be Jewish. And you were an Israelite. If you weren't circumcised, you weren't an Israelite. It was like that closely entwined together. This is something that was the doctrine was unhealthy, bad, and destructive. Unless you were circumcised, you can't be saved. Here's why it's so important. There was a covenant that took place between God and Abraham, an everlasting covenant you'll see. And the beautiful thing is, as we go through scripture, what you're going to find is the New Testament understands that in Christ, and isn't that one of the most important phrases you could ever have, in Jesus, in him, what we find is we have access to these covenants. I don't have to be circumcised. I don't have to keep the law to gain access to the promise that God made to Abraham, that in his seed, all the world will be blessed. And the promises that he gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and then eventually to David, those covenants are all found and maintained in the person of Jesus. And us who are in this room who are Gentiles, he is our way to that, Jesus is. And that's what they're gonna be experiencing and understanding. So here's what God had said. That's important. To be circumcised was a distinguishing feature that set Israel apart from every other nation. It made them God's people. It was also an act of obedience to God's law. And now you see circumcision and the law are together. If I want to keep the law, the very first thing you got to do is you got to be circumcised. And that was obviously for the prayer. You'll notice that it said on the eighth day, a fun little fact. Many of you might know this. Why the eighth day? Have you ever wondered why did God say the eighth day? They didn't know it at the time, but for those of you who are nurses or doctors, you know what happens on the eighth day of a baby's life. There's this spike for whatever reason in vitamin K, which enables your blood to clot. And God knew that. You know why he knew that? Because he created you. And so he knows, did Moses know that vitamin K existed? No. Did Moses know that vitamin K helped your blood clot? Nope. Did Moses know that on the eighth day you have this spike in vitamin K? No. But God did. And so God says, hey, wait eight days and I'm going to do this cool thing with vitamin K. And, and then your babies won't bleed out. Okay. So they're going to be okay. And now nowadays what happens? I don't want to wait in the hospital eight days. So give them the vitamin K shot and let's get out of here. Okay. That's what we did. Okay. We were out in two days. Anyway, pretty cool. That's just a fun little fact in scripture. Like that God wrote, this is from God. They didn't know about vitamin K or eighth day, nothing. But how cool is that? Okay. Anyway, let's move on. We got a lot to talk about. That's not the weirdness of circumcision. Okay. Circumcision allowed you access to God. There's stories here in the book of Acts where Paul was alleged to have brought a person who wasn't circumcised into the inner court of the law. And that was a no-no. Like they wanted to kill him for it. 
you did that, you were going to be killed. You did not step foot inside the temple compound unless you were circumcised. You could not gain access to God unless you were circumcised. It's like that intense. You were trying to understand why were they so intense about it? We're just, we're trying to paint this picture through scripture. There is though a symbolic nature to this. And in fact, what's interesting is the physical work of circumcision is more what is symbolized because God wants to do a work in your heart. And that's the more real work. If that makes sense, the work of the heart is what matters. And that's even back in Deuteronomy, even back in the Torah, God was trying to share this message. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God says, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff necked no longer. He wants your heart, doesn't he? He desires your heart even all the way back then. He wanted your heart. Where is your heart in terms of God? Where are you? <laughs> Ask yourself the question. And when we say heart, come on, we're not talking about that thing that beats. We're talking about you, your innermost, like who you are. Where are you with God? That's what he cares about. You, not your actions, not this surface level stuff. He wants you. Paul will go on to further clarify this beautiful spiritual truth that goes on in the heart of a believer upon receiving and accepting the work of the cross. He says this, in him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When you were born again, Jesus came in and did a work in you made you a new creation, cut those things away and made you new. That's the work that he did. And that's what Paul's articulating here. And that's what's being fought over in a healthy and good way right here in Acts chapter 15. In the event you want to study more on what all this means, you can check out Galatians, really the whole book of Galatians, but Galatians chapter five specifically in chapter six and then verses two through three in verse five, or chapter five. And verses 12 and 13 in chapter six are going to really make this clear in no uncertain terms. Moving on to keeping the law, this is what enabled a Jew to be in right standing before God. It made me right. It enabled my ability to worship. You see how similar it was to circumcision. In the law, you had three different aspects. We can break it down like that. The first thing we'll talk about is the civil law. And when we think about the law, you probably think of the book of Leviticus. That thing when you're trying to read through the Bible in a year, you hit Leviticus and it's Lord, help me get through this. I would encourage you, if you're there, get a commentary, get on Blue Letter Bible and David Guzik's commentary and just be in awe of how awesome God is. The book of Leviticus is almost as impressive as the book of Genesis is in, in attesting to the truth of God that this Bible did not originate by man's design. It is divine all the way through it, even in the law and leprosy and washing your hands under hyssop, everything. Okay, there's civil law though. What is civil law? Like ideas like sanctuary cities that if I accidentally kill some dude, then I have a place that I can go to so that the avenger of blood doesn't get a hold of me. And I'm protected there. This is before we had like police and all these different things. It was a more primitive form of government, but it worked. It protected people. The law contains civil law. Those are healthy and good things. Many of, much of it is foundational to our current rule of law right now. Thankful for it. You also have the moral law. That's the thing that comes 
right out of God. It's a picture into who he is and what he values, the value of human life and so on. The moral law is something that was given and the New Testament affirms it. Each one of the Ten Commandments, for example, is affirmed and repeated in the New Testament, save one, and that's the idea of the Sabbath, because we see that something happened where Jesus becomes our rest. There's a beautiful teaching and all that. We don't have time right now. Jesus has become our Sabbath and our rest. So the moral law is there. And then finally, you have the third thing, and it's the ceremonial law. I'm, th- this is a, probably a simplistic way of doing this, but I'm just doing it for, just for some clarity so we can move on and understand what were they having a problem with. The third one is ceremonial law. And that's probably what we think of, like the dietary law of Moses, where you couldn't eat pork and you couldn't eat certain things. This is what they're referring to, that if you did that, that you no longer could have relationship with God. A good example of this, there's many in scripture that the Jews are like fighting with, but this is one of the good examples with the good Samaritan. You guys remember this. So a dude was traveling down the road, some robbers beat him up, left him for dead, took all of his stuff. And then you have a priest and a Levite who walk by and they're confronted with this man. And why don't they help him? That's the question that Jesus is like, why? He just passed on by. Why would they do that? I had to do an assignment at Horizon University. It was an economics class. And we had to think through excuses the Levites, the Levite and the priest would have had in order to not help this guy. How, like what excuses could you come up with to bypass helping this guy? And because again, it was all economics, time, so on. You could think that this guy, the priest maybe, or the Levite, they had an appointment in a city where other people needed to be ministered to. And if I stop here, then I'm not gonna minister to a multitude of people there. And you could think, man, you could begin to justify all of these things. Lots of different ways you could justify, but here's what's really important and what's thought, is that if a Levite or a priest came in contact with his blood, came in contact with a dead person even, They were ceremonially unclean and they could no longer relate with God. They could no longer go into the temple and do the things that they were called to do as a priest or as a Levite. They first had to have sacrifices made and things done to purify and cleanse them. And so the thought is that they saw this dude and they went past him so that they could continue to be right with God. Now, can you understand how God and how Jesus would be so irritated by that? That in order for me to think I'm right with God, I'm going to leave a helpless dude on the road so I can maintain my right standing with God. And Jesus is like, you guys, that is actually the complete opposite of what I'm talking about. And so Jesus comes and Paul comes and Peter and all these guys are trying to help us understand that's not what it's about, that he does something in my heart. He sets me free from having to be made right by my actions so that I can help people who are in need, that I can't come in contact with a person so disgusting that I am now unclean. Now the blood of Jesus has made me clean. Get to that, and Peter's gonna make it in no uncertain terms. You can see the frustration of God thinking, no, man, that's not how I want things to go. But that's what happens with the law. Now, with that being said, listen, the law and that word law in scripture in particular is oftentimes used of the Mosaic law, like in Leviticus and Exodus and then Deuteronomy, which is the law set again, but also can refer to the first five books of the Bible. The word law in scripture is used at times to refer to the whole of the Old Testament, to refer to a section in Isaiah. 
And so it's used in that way. So when we talk about the law, that can mean different things. And there's a way to know what each particular instance is talking to when you look at the context of it. The law is beautiful. And in scripture, in Psalm 119, for example, which is all about the word of God, the law says, I delight in your law. And that's just so you know, that's David or the writer of 119. He like, I love Leviticus, right? I delight in reading about washing my hands under hyssop. (laughs) I delight in reading about leprous sores because in it, it reveals God's wisdom and all these other things, right? So name the weirdness there within the law. And David's, I delight in this. There's beauty to God's law. It is foundational for our faith as Christians. It's just so you guys are aware as a church, man, we hold, we're thankful for the Old Testament. We teach through it. It is relevant to today. And what God has, it's foundational to the gospel. As we'll see tonight, you should come and hear about it. The law is like honey. Remember that? The law, that's what they're referring to. God's word, no doubt, but it's used. Your law, your precepts, your judgments are like honey. They taste so sweet and they're so good. God's law is beautiful. It's a revelation of him. But here's what's cool. In these last days, God has revealed himself through the person of Jesus. And we get a beautiful picture of God, much better than what the law will give us. We get Jesus. He's the one that we look to. That's Hebrews chapter one. Don't have time now. The law, as it was insufficient, it was beautiful. It was holy. It was as God designed. But in terms of making you righteous, it's not going to work. And God knew that from the very beginning and here he's revealing it to us. Okay, how we relate to God is based solely and purely on the work of Jesus. Okay, we know that as a foundational principle, only Jesus and only righteousness comes from Jesus. Now, you're probably thinking, yeah, let's go look at scripture. Romans chapter three, turn with me there and we'll read it. Now, Romans was written after the events in Acts chapter 15 took place. And so Paul Barnabas and Silas and Judas and Peter and James, Jesus's brother and John and Andrew and Bartholomew and Thomas, all those dudes, they've wrestled through this here in Acts chapter 15. So now here, Paul, right in Romans, he says, we're going to start in verse 20, Romans chapter three, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Now, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? And Paul just, this is the way it is. No, de- no, no deeds of the law are going to fix you. No, no goodness on your part is going to make you right with God. And I hope as we read through this, that you can sit back in your chair and rest in the work that Jesus has done. And that you place your hope and your faith fully, totally, and completely on the finished work of the cross. He's done it for you. Rest. It goes on. No flesh will be justified in his sight for by the laws, the knowledge of sin. We're going to get to that in the Galatians in a moment. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, meaning that the law and the prophets, they explained this to us. They told us about this. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, notice through faith, Where is that faith? It's in Jesus, the work that Christ has done. All, I'm sorry, to all and on all who believe, there is no difference or distinction. You're going to see these ideas repeated time and again. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. Oh man, hey, now you should be really sitting back in that chair and just resting. Being justified freely by his grace. What work do you think you can do to add to the cross? Nothing. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the freedom and the peace that comes by believing in Jesus. Now, some of you are gonna start squirming though, because you're gonna be thinking, but I can't just do what I want. <laughs> and you're, yeah, you're right. There is something, right? Scripture refers and talks to the idea of walking worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let me tell you something. All of that comes after you've put your faith in Jesus. All of it does. Are you supposed to be sanctified? You better believe it. But you're not going to be sanctified unless you first have been justified by him. That's the position that you start in. Rest. Start right there. And resting your hope fully upon the work that Jesus has done on the cross. That's all that matters right there. And from that position of having been born again, new creation, God then does what? He works in your heart and changes you. We're concerned about a person's heart, not their actions. The actions will follow. Do we have to wrestle with people and press them and encourage them and teach them and disciple them? You better believe it. But all of it's pointless unless their heart has been impacted by the gospel, unless God has cleansed them from their sin. That's a hard issue. That's what we're dealing with here. That's what scripture's talking about. Well, we've been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. What that means is this. When you see propitiation, think in your head satisfied that God's wrath has been satisfied by his blood. And it, we have access through faith that I'm no longer an enemy of God. All of my sin and all of my rebellion, I, it's been forgiven because of what Jesus has done. Taken care of, moved out of the way. God is satisfied. I no longer have to bear the wrath of my sin. It's been taken care of, moved out of the way. Sit and relax, will you? and be thankful and praise God for the work that he's done. <clears throat> this is grace. It's hard to understand. How could he just let me like get off that way? It's, I mean, it's grace. It is hard to understand. It's beyond, but notice because of his forbearance or his willingness, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time, his righteousness that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All that to be said, this is how he's chosen to do it so that he gets the glory for it. He's the just, he's the justifier, he's the beginning, he's the end, he's done it all. And guess who we worship? Praise the name of the Lord our God. We got to do it this morning, right? We get to do it after this, if I can shut up. But we'll get to do that, to worship him. We're free to do that now. Where's boasting? Who in here can say, look how righteous I am. I've made myself right before God because I, I did this or I helped this people. Nah, there's no boasting. Is it excluded by what? By what law of works? No, man, it's the law of faith now. We boast in that. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Ah, sit back and give word and praise the Lord, okay? Praise the Lord for that. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. An exchange has taken place. My sin went to Jesus. His righteousness came to me. 
So when God looks at you right now in Christ, for those of you who are in Christ, he sees Jesus. It is as if you are his son, the perfect life that Jesus lived. That's what you have right now. You reckon it to be so because you're sitting there thinking you didn't hear me and my wife this morning talking or whatever the situation is or how I handled my parents or whatever it is. No, I didn't see that. And neither does he. (laughs) How cool is that? Do we still repent for sin, guys? Come on. I don't want to get into the weeds of it, but yeah, absolutely. But that position of righteousness doesn't change because it's not based on my performance. It's based on my belief in the work of the cross. Will that belief lead to a changed life? Come on, you better believe it will. If it's not, then I think we would have some questions to ask. Just see where the heart is indeed. But it's faith. You're saved by grace through faith alone. Hold fast to it. Don't go back to thinking that you can add to the cross. It becomes devastating. And like gangrene, Paul will use that word. It's like when you have a sore and it grows and festers and eventually you die from a little bitty thing. Gangrene. We don't want that. You can only be right with God on a basis of what Jesus has done. Put your faith in him. Acts. That's where we are. 15. Okay. Now, this will move a little bit more quickly. Okay. Look at verse six. All the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. What matter? I just spent like 20 minutes talking about it. That matter. They got together and started to talk. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, probably five-ish years ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them this Holy Spirit, just like he did to us. Something to take note of as we're studying through this. God, who knows the heart. I want you to envision Acts chapter 10. Peter is in Cornelius's house. They're hanging out, doing their thing. And God looks down on them and sees their hearts. They see them. God sees Cornelius. And Cornelius' wife, siblings, and his kids, and all. he sees them, right? He knows their heart. And you know what happens there in Acts chapter 10, 43, and then 44. Peter says, by believing on him, you'll receive remission of sins. Your sins are taken out of the way, and you have an open road to the Lord. Moved. And they're sitting there listening, and they believe. Verse 44, and while Peter was still speaking, you guys know this, we've been through many times, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They were born again, right there and then. No altar call, nothing wrong with those. No altar call, nothing. They didn't get circumcised. Do you guys realize how important this is? None of these things. Peter just says, God knows the heart. He sees them. They put their faith in Jesus and they were born again right there on the spot. He knows their heart. This is mentioned in Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10, but more specifically, Psalm 51, 16 through 17. David says this, you don't desire sacrifice or else I'd give it. Think back to the law and the sacrifices that must be made to make be right. You don't delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. What does the Lord see? He sees your heart. where are you with God? He desires that you would surrender to him. 
verse nine, he made no distinction between us and them. He purified their hearts by faith. No difference between the Jews in Acts chapter two and the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. There was no difference. It was just faith. That was the similarity that brought them all together. That's an incredible amount of unity. In Acts chapter 10, verse 15, concerning the idea of purifying, it's the same word being used here. Jesus saying, a voice spoke to him again a second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. It's the same word that Peter uses by, when he says purifying their hearts by faith. You could read cleansing their hearts by faith or Acts 15, or 10, 15, you could read what God has purified, don't you call common. That's Jesus telling Peter. And now Peter is telling them, they've been purified by faith. I don't know what else to tell you guys. It's just what happened. <laughs> That's what Peter's trying to explain. It just happened. And, I, and then look at verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? Peter brings up the unfortunate history of Israel that time and time again, they failed. From the very beginning to the very end, they could not keep the law of God. There's a purpose in that though. What was the purpose of the law? It's to reveal we need a savior. Galatians chapter three, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, the law was our tutor or like our schoolmaster, our teacher to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But once faith has come, we no longer are under a tutor. What you can do for those of you who have graduated school, you no longer need a teacher to give you instruction on what to do. You can say, hey, peace, I'm out. Those of you who have graduated high school, you're done. Those of you who graduated college, you're done. You've been brought to what you needed to be brought to and you can high five them and then move on. That's what happens here. The law reveals I have not met a standard that was necessary to be right before God. What do I do? Oh, I cry out to Jesus. That's what I do. And that's the whole point of the law right there, summed up in a way that I don't believe is simplistic, but it is simple. And then verse 11, we come to a vital doctrinal statement of the early church. The way it's worded is absolutely fascinating. And we're going to look into it just for a moment. And then we're going to cruise really fast through the rest of it because a lot of it's repeated. Paul, sorry, Peter says this, and I want you to, okay, you're in the scene, right? You've got the apostles and Silas, all those people are here. It's like maybe a crowd like this big, they're hanging out with the church. So then Peter's sharing, he's talking about all these things and he says, but we, and who's he referring to when he says we? Very likely the apostles, those 11 or 12, Matthias being the 12th, that were there with Jesus. But we believe, all of us, that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. What does Peter believe? What does the church believe? That through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Not the law, his grace. And notice what he says. This is super fun and important. He says, we, who's he referring to again? The apostles. He said, we will be saved in the same manner that they were. Now that seems backwards to me. I would think that Peter would say, they're gonna be saved just like what we were because they were the first ones to experience it. But here's what's really cool is to prevent anybody from thinking, oh, that's how you're saved, the Jews. And they did, they were circumcised. They did keep the law. That's true. So is that necessary? I don't know. Peter's were saved like they got saved. Purely faith. Pure belief in the work of Jesus Christ. And that's it. That's all there is to it. And so he's just trying to drive it home. Hey, Jews, we're saved like they're saved. Jesus, that's it. 
a belief in him. And then the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they declared all the miracles and the things that the Gentiles had done among them. And then they got silent and then James now speaks. James, this is the brother of Jesus, the half brother of Jesus, the brother of a dude named Jude who wrote a book in the Bible. This is the James that wrote the book of James. He was a leader in the early church, specifically here in Jerusalem. He says, hey, you guys have heard Simon, that's Peter, declare how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Fascinating language here that I won't be able to get into because I need to be done, but it's incredible. I just want you guys to know that. <laughs> and with these words, the, the prophets agree as it is written. Now he's going to quote Amos here. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. Why will you do that? He explains it. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who has done all these things. Peter, sorry, Barnabas and Paul are like, listen to all these incredible miracles that God has done. How amazing that is. And everybody's like, that's so cool. But at the end of the day, guess what? James says it is written. And that's all that matters. It is written. This is what God's word says. That's what we adjust ourselves to. And then James blows our minds with this next verse. Known to God from eternity are all of his works. Not even going to touch on that right now. Just know this. God is outside of time. He's, wow. He's big. Huge. Therefore, I judge. This is James making a very authoritative statement. We should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. <clears throat> but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, four things here, sexual immorality from things strangled and things from blood. Why do you do that? James, he mentions it. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, four things mentioned. We're gonna read the letter and we're gonna, we're gonna get out of here. Let's just do that real quick. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with whom the whole, and the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent along with Paul and Barnabas, Judas, who was also named Barsabas because nobody wants to name Judas anymore. And then you've got Silas, leading men among the brethren. Silas is the guy who would travel around with Paul eventually during his missionary journeys. And this is, what, this is when they maybe first met and became friends. They wrote this letter to them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren. And this was written to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, and notice what happened. They unsettled their souls, meaning that they were anchored firmly to the good news of Jesus. You're saved by grace through faith. They're anchored firmly to that. Now, all of a sudden, they're hearing things and it's unsettling them. Like, oh, okay, well, do I need more? Do I not need more? And they're like, hey, we heard you were unsettled. We want to fix that right now. Is it Jesus and Jesus alone? They were saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law. We didn't tell them to say that. Verse 25, it seemed good to us, being assembled one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And here's what I want to point out very quickly. The beauty of conflict and when it's done well. The church used to be terrified of Paul because of what he had done. And here they came together. They wrestled through difficult things. They disagreed, but at the end of the day, they recognized we were wrong and we're going to change. And they recognized this, that beloved Paul now, the conflict brought them together. They sharpened one another and they were recognizing the beauty of, what, of who Paul is in his ministry. 
That came out of conflict. What a beautiful and awesome thing. These guys have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus. We therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same thing by word of mouth. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. That's the most important thing. But also they're saying and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Four things again, you abstain from things offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do where? And they will do well and they say farewell. Just so you know, those four particular things that were mentioned are all listed by law in Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. It's something that the law does discuss. Very important. There's some ends and the outs of it. Time won't allow it, but... Why did they do this? And I want to point out very clearly that it says, if you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. It doesn't say you will be saved. And that's important. Why did they do this then? What was the point? A lot of this goes, and I want to encourage you guys, think Romans chapter 14 that deals very specifically with the idea of what we would call like the law of love. And in order for the Jewish church and the Gentiles to be able to have legitimate sweet corn and eat together. That's fellowship. They're like, can you guys do this for us? We absolutely recognize you do not need to be circumcised nor keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. But would you consider not doing this so that we can have unhindered fellowship together? And this is where it becomes really important to apply. They were encouraged, the church was, and expected to do what was necessary in order to foster relationships. And you can think like, we're here in Indiana, it's fairly homogenous as far as our cultures and our values and our beliefs. But if you get outside of here, for example, if you go to Ecuador, there are certain things we might be used to here with how we dress, what we say, how we eat, or whatever the situation is. But in Ecuador, it would be offensive. They would be like, what are you doing? And so then what we would do is say, hey, I have every right in Christ to do this or say or whatever it would be to eat this. But because it stumbles you and upsets you, I won't do it, that's fine. Why? Why would I do that? Because I want there to be unity between us. I want to walk together for the sake of the gospel. And so I'm willing to lay down my rights so that I can have fellowship with you. Now, yes, there's nuance to these things. But as a general principle, something maybe you guys can just chew on and think about. The law of love. That is there a way in which I live my life because I have freedom in Christ that just drags others down or is offensive to them? If that's the case, then you need to reconsider. You need to think through what God would call you to because Jesus desires unity within his church. We see it happening right here. And two cultures and two totally different ways of thinking, they were both laying aside things, compromising why so that they can hang out together. They're not compromising doctrine. They're not compromising truth. It's just these other auxiliary things that will allow and foster fellowship. Consider that between us. It's probably a little bit more relevant today, not cultural differences, but generational differences. Where there's a generational difference here from the young people, the way they think, talk, act, so on and so forth. And then there's an older generation and there's a lack of continuity between the two. And we'll get to it when we get to Romans 14. And how do we handle these things? There, well, there's a laying down of your rights on both ends and vice versa. Like we, we want to live together in such a way where we're able to move forward for the gospel. It's so important and so vital that the gospel is moving and that we aren't the ones stumbling it because we're holding on to things we just don't need to hold on to. Consider, let the Holy Spirit speak to you guys. We'll dive more into that and what heresy is 
next week and Romans 14 and have some fun like that. Okay, I gotta be done. Let's pray and then we'll go. Lord Jesus, oh, you can come up, Ed. Yeah, that's great. Uh, man, Lord, here we are longing for you, for more of you. We thank you for the work of the cross, that you died, you rose again, that you paid the price on our behalf. You've made us right before you, God. It's not a matter of my works. It's not a matter of me living perfectly or doing all the right things or saying the right things, thinking the right things. You've asked that I would put my faith in you. And I am now to trust that you will work in my life, that you will change me. We want to walk worthy of the gospel. We just thank you. That's not a prerequisite to being saved. You want us to know you. You desire our hearts. And so for those who haven't given their lives to you, Lord, call them, convict them and draw them near to you that they would with their hearts trust in you knowing that they're saved by grace through faith in the work of the cross, that you, Jesus, have satisfied God's wrath. We can be your children now. Thank you for that. Minister to our hearts even now as we worship you. You're so good. Help us to take this message to the lost. Use us. The harvest is plentiful, Lord. Here we are. Stir us up, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.